I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 to the end. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin and does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you, Greg. Gray hair and all. <laughs> all right, we are coming to the end of this, uh, walking through this book of 1 John, and it's been good for my soul. Uh, and I hope that, you know, as we close out, um, again, just mentioned a couple weeks ago, we talked about the centrality of love in the Christian life. Last week, looked at the, about the significance of faith. And uh, today, we're looking at uh, Christian confidence. Hey, thanks. Uh, you know, speaking of confidence, um, I just did a random Google search a couple weeks ago on, on anxiety, and within like the first three or four uh, recent news items on anxiety, I read these two. Number one, anxiety is on the rise even as the pandemic slows. Then another recent news headline, anxiety linked to lower levels of heart health in young adults. I just like the fact that both of those made me more anxious. I'm a young adult, I'm on the back end of the pandemic. Uh, like, no one wants to be anxious. Everyone wants to be confident. It, interesting, though, sometimes when we want to be confident, we are actually the most susceptible to be a victim of a hustle. Uh, interesting, there's a book out, uh, you can get it at your own public library if you're interested, by Maria Konnikova called The Confidence Game. Why we fall for it every time. And uh, she includes the con honest mantra. And it goes like this. This is the con honest mantra. I think it's on the next slide. It says this. We aren't robbers, you and I. To rob a fool, you don't need knives. Just flatter him, tell him sweet lies, and he is yours for life. Right? If they fall for it, it's not my fault. I'm not a robber if you just hand me your cash or... In this book, uh, Konikova, she talks about the most famous con artists in recent history. She talks about Mer Bernie Madoff, uh, Jimmy T Jim and Tammy Baker, uh, even Lance Armstrong. <sighs> One of the bottom line ideas was this. She writes, people who want to believe are people who get lied to. People who want to believe are people who get lied to. In other words, over-exaggerated optimism can make us good victims. 
Now, when we're coming to the end of this letter by the Apostle John, he wants Christians to have confidence, like a real Christ-honoring confidence. And yet I also appreciate, as we walk through this last text, it's not presumption. John is not some sort of con artist tricking you as some, you know, uh, you can't lose optimism. He actually has a lot of reality baked into the kind of confidence Christians can have, need to have, and should have. But it's no hustle. Uh, John is not a grifter or a con man. So, brothers and sisters, we are supposed to walk in confidence. But what kind of confidence? Well, one kind of confidence we see right in the first section, beginning in verse 13. Christian, you, because of Jesus Christ, you can have confidence before God. Because of Jesus, you can have confidence before God. Verse 13, some scholars think this is the thesis statement of the whole letter. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. These words put together by an apostle of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ writes these things to those who, have, who, are, who believe. Now, interesting, the, the word believe done very correctly here in English, but in the original Greek as well. It's in the present tense. You who are believing now. You who have expressed belief now. You can know now that you have eternal life. Eternal life is much more of a quality than a quantity. Right? It's a quality of life. The life of the eternities, the life of God. Life with God. Some of you guys know John 17, 3, when Jesus says, you know, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true Father God, and the one you've sent, the Son, that's eternal life, and it's available to all those who believe right now. Spiritual confidence derives from present faith. It, it always is important to, to maybe do a little check in the morning, How, do you believe today? <laughs> And if you're like me, one of my most repeated prayers to God is, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. But in believing and trusting in Jesus, you can have eternal life. Uh, the word believe, just to remind you, is more than giving mental assent. Uh, to believe means you put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. To believe means you've submitted to Jesus as Savior and Lord. To believe means you have put all of your eggs in the Jesus basket. My hope, my future, uh, my righteousness, all on Jesus. You can have confidence before God because of Jesus. And he, it goes, he goes on and says, you can have confidence before God because of Jesus also as you pray. Look at verse 14. It says, this is the confidence. So we have confidence in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have it if we, when we've asked of him. Uh, you could be bold in your approach to God. 
That's what it's saying. And particularly, notice it says, you can be bold in your approach to God when you're asking, the kind, asking for the th- kinds of things that God loves to give. Holy things, good things. My kids know that. They know that they're going to have a better chance of dessert if they ask me at the end of dinner, are we having dessert tonight? Because they know their father's will. <laughs> right? And this is why moms, when, when you pray that your children would know and trust Jesus, you can, you can know that that's the kind of heart the father has for his children. So pray, moms, for your children. You know, bosses, uh, you know, when you're praying for your employees and you're praying for their blessing and their hard work and their honesty and how they do their job, you're praying in the Father's will. Teenagers, when you're praying, or those of you about to go out to college, when you're praying, God, would you give me Christian friends who will help me to love the things you love and obey the things that you want me to obey? You're praying in the vein of God, right? And so when you ask those sorts of things, you can know that he hears those prayers. It's like, I, I, he loves to good, give good gifts, we read in James 1. He loves to hear our prayers. Um, you know, this isn't a name it and claim it verse, even though people have used it that way. There's all these caveats. We pray according to his will, and whatever we ask, we can know that we have what we asked of him. I believe that's a promise that God will ultimately answer all of our prayers in heaven. I do. I believe that God, will, God hears every prayer. God is going to answer every prayer, but he isn't going to answer every prayer in this life. Uh, he is not working within the 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years that we're going to live. He is working to fulfill his will, and it goes beyond our lives. And yet we pray, and that's why part of why we pray for future generations. We pray for people who will live after us. This is why we, 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 we do things for God that are beyond our lifespans, because we want to pray, and we want to trust God that he's going to answer things according to his will and according into his time. And so pray, come with confidence, come early, come often. But here we're going to see, though, that uh, John is wanting us to have confidence before God. It's not confidence with no limits. Because that would put us in the driver's seat and not God in the driver's seat. And notice what he says now about prayer. It does have limits. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that leads to death. So first off, verse 16, it is this invitation that when you see someone struggling in sin, which basically means when you wake up and you're paying attention, and seeing that people are struggling with sin, the enemy is lying to them and they're believing lies when you see people struggling with sin you're supposed to post it on facebook you're supposed to call all of the members of your small group except the person struggling with sin and say do you know that so-and-so is struggling in sin i guess it doesn't say that you see someone struggling in sin you pray for them you go before Father and say, Father, as one who has struggled in sin, I see their struggle in sin. Would you free them? Would you help them to see the truth? Would you help them to see what's the path of life? Maybe you come to them and say, hey, I see you're struggling. Can I pray with you? 
But it says there is a prayer, there is a sort sort of sin that leads to death that we're not supposed to pray about. And that's, anytime you start getting into this language, it gets a little complex, and there's a bit of a debate, but I'm going to tell you what I think is the sin that leads to death. Um, This word death is in contrast to the eternal life mentioned in verse 13, so I don't think it's just talking about mortal death. It's talking about an eternal sort of death. And so it's the sort of sin that brings down God's final judgment, speaking of of hell and, and the eternal consequence. It's obviously a sin that's so heinous that there's no go around. Uh, most likely, I believe it's connected to the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that's talked about in Mark chapter 3, verse 29. I also think it relates to the sin that's described in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Let, I'll go back and read those verses to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, read this way. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So what do all these have in common? And this is what I think it has in common. It's open-eyed unrepentance. Open-eyed unrepentance. Or we could put it this way, willful unbelief. So when Jesus was talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 3, it was in the context that religious leaders were witnessing the miracles of God and rejecting that that was from God. They were seeing the kingdom of God on the move through the personal work of Jesus Christ, and they were saying, that's bad. That's not of God. And so they're seeing the power of the kingdom of the, the king of kings, bringing what the, the future kingdom, the future heaven that will be one day on earth. He's giving glimmers of what that's going to be like, and people saying, well, that's not of God. So with their eyes wide open, they're saying, I'm not going to repent and follow this Savior. It's the same thing you see in Hebrews chapter 10. They've received the knowledge of the truth. They've heard about Christ. They've heard about new life, about being born again, about walking in the power of the Spirit, about turning from sin and turning toward life. And they say, nope, I'm going to keep running after my selfishness. I'm going to keep holding on to my evil deliberately. And here it says, don't pray about that sort of sin that leads to that death. To go to God and say, God, ignore their open-eyed unrepentance. God cannot do. Now, you could certainly pray that people do repent. You could certainly pray, Lord, would they see the errors of their way? Would they see that they're sinning against the holy God? Would they turn their hearts and follow you? Pray that prayer. You could certainly pray that, that they're, they're 100 miles in that direction would hit something on this side of the grave that says, I need to stop and turn around and go that way. You can pray for God's discipline in their life. But you don't go before God and say, ignore the heinousness of sin. That would cheapen God's glory. That would dishonor his word. One scholar put it this way, we should not pray where God's will stands against us. We should not pray where God's will stands against us. Now, this always makes me think of Mark Twain's mother. Some of you guys have heard of Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens, writer of uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. But he also wrote an autobiography. As all of his works, it's quite witty. You want to read it. In typical Mark Twain cleverness, he talks about his mom's surprising support of Satan. 
Twain explains his mom's rationale this way, quote, she admitted that the indictment was sound, that Satan was utterly wicked and abandoned, just as these people had said, but who prays for Satan? Who in 18 centuries has had the common humanity to pray for the one sinner that needed it most? Now, I get it. Again, there's a side of me that's somewhat impressed that Twain's mother could even show a little bit of compassion for the devil. But I actually think this is a non-biblical perspective. Right? We offer compassion for victims, not victimizers. Right? And this is the chief victimizer without a shred of innocence in his soul who deliberately seeks to destroy and to kill He's the chief angel of evil. He's the prince of darkness. And we should not pray where God's will stands against us. So God says, yes, come and pray, but never demand unholy things. Christians, he wants us to have confidence before him, but never come presumptuously. He's always the holy God. And we bring the sorts of things that are in line with his will. Not a license for presumption, but an invitation to prayerfulness. So if you're anxious about your soul, if you're burdened by your life, come to God. Believe in the Son of God, and you can know that you have eternal life. Bring your prayers before the Father according to his will. The Apostle John wants us to have a genuine confidence before God. To walk in such confidence. But the confidence is even bigger than that. He says, not only can you have confidence before God in approaching him and knowing about eternal life through his son, it says you can also have spiritual confidence in the face of evil because of Jesus. Verses 18 and 20, it's only three verses, and it makes at least four promises to those who have trusted in Jesus with regard to evil. First, John promises that we are no longer slaves of sin. Second, we are kept by God. Third, evil is on a leash. And and fourth, that Satan is no match for the true God. So number one, we're no longer slaves of sin. Look at the beginning of verse 18. It says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, those of you who've been with us in 1 John know that this is a repetition of something he talked about earlier in the book. But it is this great promise that no matter what sin that may be present in your life today, by the power of Jesus Christ, you're no longer a slave to it. Not a slave. The, sh- you've been, the shackles are gone. You can recover from every single addiction. Every single one. No matter how many years or decades you've been caught in the same sin, in the power of Jesus Christ, you can experience victory. One of Satan's number one lies is, you're just that way. You've always been that way. You were born that way. You're never going to change. You're stuck in this forever. This is who you are. But what it says, those who have believed in Christ, you've been born again. There's new life in you. Right, you, have, you were a toy car without batteries, but now you're empowered with the eternal energizer. You can go places you've never gone before. You can say no to sin that you were never able to say no to before. 
You're no longer a slave of sin. You can have spiritual confidence in the face of evil. It says also that you are kept by God. Going on in verse 18, the New International Version says, The one who was born of God keeps them safe. Uh, the New American Standard just puts it, you are, that God keeps them. The one who was born of God keeps them. That is, uh, he holds us in the palm of his hand. He, he, God cards, guards us with his everlasting love. He even directs angels for our protection. So yes, we are kept. We are even on one hand kept safe, but on the other hand, we're not safe as 21st century defines safe. The 21st century is a humorous century in that when I was a kid, I woke up at 9 or 10 in the morning in my summer days, and I said, good morning, Mom, and then I was gone. And about 9 or 10 at night, and I'm like 11 years old, I would say, good night, Mom. That was was meant to be a Gen X, right? That's why I stepped on a nail while I was building stuff with raw wood, and that's why I fell down and had stitches multiple times, because my parents didn't keep me safe. They just said, good luck. Now, 21st century, like, we hire, like, force fields to walk around our children, and it turns out it's us. Now, what I'm saying about, when God is saying he's going to keep us safe, it doesn't mean you won't suffer. It just means that suffering doesn't have the last word. Uh, Being kept by God doesn't mean you won't face battles. It just means that final victory is assured. God will keep you, but he always keeps you through the trials. He doesn't keep you from the trials. With God, we'll make it. That's why we can have spiritual confidence in the face of evil. God will keep you. Um, Kind of related to that is this idea that, thirdly, evil is on a leash. And so again, at the end of verse 18, it says, and the evil one cannot harm them. Those of you who have gone through great amounts of suffering will say, it sure feels like I can be harmed. Even in this promise, that the harm doesn't have the last word. Even where God has allowed a little bit of leash for his little yippie dog, the devil, it's serving a purpose for greater healing and greater redemption. Uh, Yes, Satan can attack. Yes, he can wreak havoc, but he cannot win. He might be able to scratch you with his claws, but he can't get his claws around you and then pull you in and steal your soul. When I go jogging and I'm running and all of a sudden I hear, rrr, 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 I'm really thankful that the fence is there by the, to- by the time the dog gets there. And by God's grace, I've never met a dog. I've heard others who haven't been so lucky, but I've been lucky that it's some very big dogs at very early hours. They hit the fence. There was a leash. There was something that stopped that dog. And God ordains the length of Satan's leash. It's all part of God's perfect plan. Satan can do no more or less than God allows. It's not a leash. And this is why Christians, hear this, you can move into the most challenging, seemingly dangerous places in town 
and in the world. This is why Christians will sometimes engage with most, the most demonized and disturbed people. And you walk in there and you say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Jesus, no love. In the name of Jesus, have a place at my dinner table. The evil one cannot harm you, so you can have spiritual confidence in the face of evil. And, and Christians, this is, this is why people will move into uh, places um, that, are, that seem crazy. Like, we probably shouldn't move there. Uh, I, was, I was trying to think what the name of the country I was reading about, but, uh, oh, here it is, Somalia. Uh, Christians are going to Somalia. Do you know how bad Somalia is? It's 99% Muslim, and it's, it's morally encouraged to, more, to hunt down and kill Christians. And yet people are taking the gospel to Somalia because they know that Satan is on a leash and that even what harm could happen in this life, even the loss of their very life, would end in ultimate victory. And so they go. Christian, you can have spiritual confidence in the face of evil. Let me just talk about one last aspect, and that is the idea that Satan is no match for the true God. And that's where you get verses 19 and 20 saying this. It says, Now we know we are children of God. Yes, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know him who is true. Satan is the father of lies, but we know who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. And he eternal life. Do you see the, com the contrast? Yes, Satan is the ruler of this world. His leash is in this world. But we know the God who reigns over heaven and earth. We know the true God who has no limits. We know the true God who is all-powerful and all-wise. Satan is no match for the true God. Villains are scary when they lurk in the dark. A villain is scary when we don't know who or she is. But when this villain is exposed, we're only scared if we have a weak hero. But our hero is not weak. True God of true God, right? Very God of very God. Our hero is the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler of this world Satan can't compare. Right? Satan is the Joker. Jesus is Batman. Right? Satan is Lex Luthor. He is a Superman, right? And the villains, they can scheme, but they always end up flat on their face. Christians, you can have spiritual confidence in the face of evil. And so I say that, like, if you've been dabbling in witchcraft, if you've been getting involved in the occult and the, the powers of darkness are saying you've gone too far, no, you look at those, the, you speak words like this, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. Be gone, demon. Be gone, wickedness. And then that's the victory we have in this world is Jesus Christ. Christian, you can have confidence. You can have confidence before God, and you can have confidence in the face of evil. Let's look at one third aspect of confidence. We can, because of Jesus Christ, we can have spiritual confidence to evade spiritual landmines. Verse 21. It's one of the most provocative closings to any of the epistles. Most epistles close with grace and peace to you 
tell Tommy I said hi. I hope to see you later. I mean, that's kind of how a lot of these epistles end. But John, after writing to give people confidence and assurance that they can know God, he closes with, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is kind of like what dad says when you take your first you know, plane trip. Hey kids, come back in one piece. Right. Uh, it's a final exhortation, like, hey, don't forget this little nugget. Uh, it, it may, I mean, I've heard some really interesting sermons. Like, in some ways, this could be the summary statement also of 1 John. Like, I've been talking about the one true God and that you can know him and that you can live with him and you can experience the power of him. And therefore, keep out for the false. Keep, out, keep your eyes open for the lies. Because they're everywhere. They're kind of like, Landmines. Speaking of landmines, did you guys see this NPR, NPR story about the rat? This is super fascinating. So there's this famous rat. His name is Magawa. We have a picture of the rat. There he is. This is a Tanzanian-born African giant pouched rat. And he has been serving for like six or seven years finding landmines in Cambodia. He is trained to, to recognize a certain smell of an undetonated landmine. And because he's so light, if he, put, if he, if he steps on the landmine, he doesn't blow up. And so he's, he's successfully in his career, done, he's helped discover 71 landmines and 38 other weapons uh, that could have detonated if a human being would have stood on him, uh, stood, uh, if a human would have stood on it. Uh, he has been faithful and he's getting to retire. After, after, after successfully scouring 2.4 million square feet, he is up for retirement. He actually received one of the most distinguished medals that animals can provide. I guess there are medals for said animals. Uh, do you know what he did all this for? According to the article I read, bananas. He did. That's how they, they rewarded him. With bananas. A couple thoughts. One, I love that he was trained to smell out danger. And in the, in the, you know, in the history of his success, he gets a medal and some bananas. What, what the Apostle John is doing at the end of this letter, he's saying we need to smell the false. Otherwise, we'll miss out on the reward. And the reward, he has been writing her out for five chapters. The reward is knowing Jesus Christ and walking with him, having intimacy with the living God and living forever. Is it worthwhile to smell out landmines to have that? That you can know the one true God? But the landmines are everywhere. And these landmines are called idols. The term idol refers to any false image or idea that leads us to love and worship something other than God. So an idol is a good thing that we have made a God thing. That we believe that this thing will give us hope and meaning and purpose and love. But there is only one God. And this, this God invites us and requires us to worship and honor him. We must seek our satisfaction in him. And yet the reason why John would put this at the end of his letter is, is a reminder, but the, those little landmines are everywhere. 
There's always things trying to pull us away. Always other things that will make us maybe feel happy and, and, and whole. And we might think they're little, but they're not little. They're dangerous. You say, oh, it's just baseball. No, it's a landmine. Just the Netflix series. No, it's a landmine. It's Starbucks coffee. It's my marriage. It's, it's this friend I, I really want at school. It's this girl I want to kiss. It's the first ch- chair and band I, I have to have. And John says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. I appreciate a writer named Tim Chester. Tim Chester warns this way. We're controlled by whatever has captured our hearts. We're controlled by whatever captures our heart. Whatever captures your heart is your God. What captures your heart? What what do you think about? What do you look up on the internet? How do you spend your day? What makes you happy? What makes you tick? Whatever captures your heart is controlling you. And John says, brothers and sisters, keep, out for, keep your eyes out for these, these landmines, these, these idols. They're everywhere. I've been thinking about different idols in my life lately and some of the things I've been trying to do to, to temper these, these weird affections. You know? So some of the things I've been doing to try to keep myself from idols is I'm using a tool on my computer called Stay Focused. It's an app you can get on the Chrome store. Right? But it limits how many days I can search for some of the things that creep into my heart to be idols. Some of those things include news sites, cyclone sports sites, uh, social media sites, because all those things, they pull me away. And so I've set limits, because I fear that these things are going to steal my soul, because they have. I've had to start setting restrictions on how many days in the week I can have dessert. I happen to have one of those body frames that probably will never reveal how much dessert I have, but I can put in a lot, and it makes me really happy. But whatever, whatever has captured your affections controls you. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I imagine there's already some people out here that are starting to th- think through how this applies to you this week. Uh, one of you already knows. Maybe you're already saying, I know I need to cancel my subscription to some streaming service. Disney Plus has to go. Netflix has to go. These are good things, but they can become God things. Uh, one of you needs to get back on the wagon. Right? And for you know that there's something that you used to you know, you know I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to eat this, I'm not going to go to that place. But you've got maybe a little confidence in the wrong things, and now you're like, wow, I have to get back on that. I thought I could control that, turns out it's controlling me. Now still others of you know there is an idol in your life, but you're hesitant to let it go. I just want to share two verses that uh, I think John was thinking about when he wrote 1 John 5, 21. But they come from Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. I just want to read Zechariah 13, verse 1 and 2. It's an amazing promise before Jesus by several hundred years. And this prophet pictures this day. He says, on that day, 
this future day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Verse 2, it says, And on that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. So Zechariah foresees this day when a great wave of cleansing pours forth from the house of David. He sees a day when people turn away from their idols so much that they're not even remembered anymore. Some of you have told me those stories about, you know, I used to just be so controlled by pornography, but I don't even think about it anymore. Or I used to be so caught up in drink, but I'm not there anymore. I used to just rag on people and care about how impressed people were by how quick my sarcasm was, but I don't even care about that stuff anymore. That's the work of Jesus. That those old things that you treasured, you don't, you don't, even, they don't even remember them. They're gone from your life. What has Zechariah foreseen? He's foreseen Jesus Christ. He's foreseen the Son of God arriving and through his life, death, and resurrection, eternal life being offered to the world. And he's seen people turn away from their little girl good idols, good idols, and turning to the great God. John knows this day has come for the first century Christians, and it's still true for us today. We can have spiritual confidence before God. We can have spiritual confidence in the face of evil. We can have spiritual confidence to stay far from these landmines of idolatry. So go out this week. Go out this week. Tell someone you know Jesus. Pray for someone who's fallen into sin. Walk into the face of evil in the power of Jesus. Keep yourselves from idols. When we started this sermon series many weeks ago, we were in John chapter 1. And that's where John says, I want to tell you about Jesus, who Jesus, fully God, but he came as a man. And we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. And he said, and you too can know this God who we have come to know. And as he closes this epistle, John seeks to assure everyone who believe in the Son of God that they have eternal life. In a world of anxious people, Christians, we can have confidence. It's not presumption, nor is it mere opinion. It's a settled and humble certainty that Jesus is who he said he is, and he can do what he says he can do. But again, just context before we go. John is no con artist here. He doesn't simply play on our optimism, right? He warns of the ruler of this world and the danger of idols. He says, God listens to your prayers. Remember that it is God to whom you address, so beware of you bringing, be sure that you bring holy prayers to the Lord. God will keep you, but it doesn't mean you can do nothing to keep yourselves. Christianity is so simple, right, and, and that a child can understand this, but it's not simplistic. It requires nothing of you. But in all these promises, you can walk with confidence. You can walk with confidence like I did one day in the third grade. On the Friday before Mother's Day, many, many moons ago, I was carrying, so you've heard this story, I was carrying this styrofoam cup home with this little flower that had been growing from my third grade teacher. And I was going to bestow this glorious Mother's Day gift upon my mother because it was Mother's Day. But then the neighborhood bully came by and he knocked my styrofoam cup out, smashed it on the ground, tried to go on his way. When lo and behold, Matt's four-year-older brother named Heath 
ran after said bully and instituted some instruction upon his jaw (laughs) about why you shouldn't mess with my little brother. Now, the weekend was sad. I didn't get to bestow the gift to my mother, but I got to take walking to school on Monday. I felt great (laughs) because I had an elder brother. Hey, much, much more so, brothers and sisters, our elder brother is Jesus. And so when you go to work on Monday morning, you can have confidence. Our elder brother is Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence that is ours through Jesus Christ. Not a confidence in and of ourselves, but it's in what he has done for us, his love for us, his immense power, his control over uh, Adams as well as as Satan's. And uh, we pray, God, that uh, we would not be foolhardy and to think that uh, we're above the temptation and lies of the enemy, that we would not uh, cozy up with idols that seek our destruction. Uh, but we would turn once again and believe in the Son of God so that by believing in Him, we can know that we have eternal life. And through Christ, then, let us walk with confidence, even in the face of evil, even to the hardest places in the world. We pray that we would go in the confidence that Jesus offers His people. We love you and pray that you would bless uh, the closing of the service and the taking of the supper and the praise we respond back to you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.